Good morning, everybody. Welcome, New Spring. It's our fourth weekend service. It's my fourth time to give this talk. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm pumped about it. You would think after I've done this three times that it, but it just, it, it keeps getting more and more wonderful. And yet in a way, it intimidates me because how does a human being find a way to explain this awesome truth that we're going to learn today? Uh, we're in a series right now called Red Letters, and if you've ever picked up a Bible, and some of you maybe have read one or maybe even have one, if you've ever picked up a Bible and wondered why some of the letters are in red, the reason for that is those particular words that you find in red are words that Jesus said. And of course, I believe, and, and I don't know where you are in this, but my personal belief is that all the Bible is the Word of God. When I need an answer, I don't go to a denomination. I don't go to a man. I go to God's Word to find out what God has to say about something, and I got to tell you, I, I, you may not share that view, but I can tell you this, it has revolutionized my life. And, and I know that all the Bible is the Word of God, but I got to tell you, there's a special thing for me when I read the very words of Jesus. And if you were here for week one of uh, Red Letters, you know that I gave you a verse in which Jesus said the words that he spoke, they were spirit and they were life. In other words, when you get Jesus' words in you, it will, it will bring you to life spiritually. So my, my chores, I told you in week one, was to think about all the things that are in red letters, all the words that Jesus said. Most of them are in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some are in the book of Revelation. There actually are a few, like in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, spread around, but most are obviously in the Gospels. My job was to find the eight things that Jesus said that were the biggest things that he ever said. Well, I don't have the authority to do that, nor do I have the, the spiritual or intellectual horsepower to do that, but I'm the one who's coming up with the sermon. So I tried to pray and ask, what are the eight things that Jesus said that are the biggest things he ever said. And, and I came down to 21. And for those of you who are longtime New Springers, I bet you can smell ser you know, a sequel coming next year because th these are just incredible, incredible, uh, you know, incredibly wonderful truths that, that Jesus said. Uh, week one, I, I told you, I, I knew always the first thing that I wanted to bring to you was just the word come, because I believe if Jesus were standing here today, he would open his arms to you and he would say, come. And then last week, for everybody going through a storm, you know, Jesus met the disciples walking on the water, and he said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And today, I want to bring to you week three. I always knew this one would have to be part of what we would talk about in red letters. It is Jesus' statement, you must be born again. It is huge. I just I can't avoid that one because the word must. The word must is a word well, it's a bigger word than you should do something, because if you should do it, it's advisable, but it's still elective. Or if, you, if I said you can do something, that, that's something. But, but must is a very strong word, because must is attached to consequences. There are consequences if I, don't, if I fail to do what I must do. For instance, if I must have so many credit hours to graduate, if I don't have them, I don't graduate. I don't walk. You know, if, if I must give a certain percentage of my income to the federal government, if I don't, I go to jail. There are consequences attached. If I must have liability insurance, I can't drive my car if I don't have it. So on and on it could go. You and I could think about the things that we've been told that we must do. And, and I don't know how you feel about those particular authorities that tell you what you must do. Often we human beings, we have a little bit of pushback if we're told that we must do something. In many of us, there's a side of us that rebels, and here's why. Because ordinarily, when we're told we must do something, there is a measure of difficulty or a measure of unpleasantness associated with it. Think about most things that you've been told that you must do, there's an aspect of it that is somewhat unpleasant. So when Jesus comes to us and says you must be born again, 
for some people, there's a little bit of pushback against that. But I want to establish right from the beginning, you and I should never push back about that, from that because really when you get right down to it, what Jesus tells us we must do is what we should crave more than anything else. And that's a new start, a new beginning. How many of us would like to have a do-over at life? How many of us would like to get rid of all the baggage that we carry? I mean, how many of us would like to know for sure that we're free from any penalty that's incurred by the things that we've done that are wrong, that have offended God. So think how cool it is, Jesus' statement. He is telling us we must do what we should crave more than anything else. He is saying you must have a new start to life. That is like saying you must take this $10 million. Well, okay, if I must. You know, you must take this month-long all-expenses-paid vacation to the Bahamas. Well, throw me in that briar patch. I mean, you know, for Jesus to come along and say you must be born again, that is so much bigger than money. It's so much bigger than a vacation. I mean, if Jesus just said, Mark, you can be born again, that should turn me into a Pentecostal right there. Just the fact that I could start life over again. But he says, you must be born again. And that's true for me, and it's true for you. So, if we were going to find these red letters in the Bible, where would we look them up? We would need to go to a chapter in the Bible that many Bible students and Bible scholars feel is the most important chapter in the Bible. It is John chapter 3. And you know instantly that perhaps the most famous, well, let's just strike the word perhaps, the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. So we are going to that territory. In fact, we're going to a dialogue that Jesus had in John chapter 3. I'm going to read to you a few verses so that you can see the expression, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Here we go. This is John chapter 3, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it. If you don't, these will be on the screen. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And three verses later, Jesus would say it, you must be born again. Let's talk about that. You guys are probably tired of hearing me say this by now, but I hope God keeps all this stuff on video because I want to see it. It is night. It is a warm April night in Jerusalem. Streets are empty because people didn't travel at night. There was a superstition about breathing night air, so people were all indoors. Streets empty. Might have been a few dogs howling or whatever in the streets, but streets are empty. And the wind is blowing through Jerusalem on this warm April night. You can't tell where it's coming from. You can't tell where it's going. It's just swirling around. Jesus is in a particular house in the city of Jerusalem. He is upstairs in a room by himself. There are stairs that lead to Jesus' room, but they would not go through the middle of the house. Was, they're on the outside of the house. It would be possible for a person to get to Jesus' room and not go through the house and be totally unnoticed by anyone else there. Jesus could come and go that way. It is late at night. I have no idea what Jesus is doing. Maybe he's reading the scrolls from the Old Testament. Maybe he's praying. Jesus is human and God at the same time. He could be like some of us. He might have already been dozing off. I doubt it. Because Jesus knows he is going to have a visitor that night. His visitor is already out on the streets. He is by himself because nobody would be out late at night. And he is out for that particular reason. He does not want anyone to see him. He does not want anyone to notice that he's out. And certainly he doesn't want anybody to know where he's going. The visitor is, well, he's a rock star in the city. His name is Nicodemus. He is 
a member of the Senate. There was a Jewish Senate of 70 members that decided all things political and religious and legal. It was called the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was a voting member of the Sanhedrin, one of its most respected members. When Nicodemus stood to make a speech in the Sanhedrin, everybody listened. But more than anything else, Nicodemus was the most learned expert on what we would call the Bible, at that time the Old Testament. If anybody had a question about the Bible, if they could get in to see him, they would go see Dr. Nicodemus. He would be tantamount to the leading seminarian of his time. And in this culture, everybody looked up to him. Whenever Nicodemus walked through town, he was more than Richard Corey. When he walked through town, everybody turned to look at Nicodemus. He was... Man, he was it. Everybody thought, wow, I wish I could just know a fraction of what Nicodemus knows about God and knows about the Bible. You need to understand that Nicodemus is out this night because he is going to see a 33-year-old man who has never been to any organized seminary. The only job he has held is that of a carpenter. And Nicodemus is going to talk to him. And on top of that, he is going to talk to, at this moment, a very unpopular man with Nicodemus' friends. Because for one thing, Jesus had upset the spiritual, the religious. Let me, let me go back to that. He had upset the religious elite of his time. These people had, they had sort of made their, they made their bones, so to speak, by showing everybody they knew more about the Bible than anybody else. And everybody else looked up to them. If you ever read about the Pharisees in the Bible, there were only about 6,000 of them. And the common people thought, wow, these are the people that know the way to God. And along comes Jesus with his miracles and his magnificent way of teaching. And everybody is saying, whoa, we thought the Pharisees were something, but they ain't nothing compared to this guy. And the Pharisees didn't like that. And if they didn't like that, well, just the other day, Jesus had gone into the temple. And there were people that were selling, some of these religious elite, they were selling defective animals for sacrifice. And beyond that, this is maybe more than you want to know, But everybody had to come and pay a temple tax, and they had to do it with particular currency. And so people that came from outlying areas and brought their currency with them, they had to exchange currency. And a lot of the religious elite were charging exorbitant rates and pocketing the difference. And and Jesus saw that happening in the temple that belonged to him and his father. And he went in with a whip, and he kicked over the tables, and he drove them out and said, you're not going to make my father's house a den of thieves. And that didn't make Jesus very popular with Nicodemus' friends. Hence his coming at night. You get the picture in your mind? Jesus upstairs in his room. Nicodemus is drawing ever closer. As he gets to the bottom of the stairs, he looks both ways to make sure that no one sees him. And then he begins to climb the steps to Jesus' room. Jesus opens the door. This is what I want to see on video. I think I know exactly how it came down. Jesus, of course, was 33 years old. Nicodemus is probably at least my age, maybe older, late 50s, early 60s. I mean, it would have been the normal thing if Jesus had opened the door to say, wow, it's Nicodemus. I can't believe you're coming to see me. How cool. Oh, would you please take the, take the seat here? And then Nicodemus could come in and he could go on like he would normally go in that conversation. If that's what Nicodemus was expecting, it didn't go down that way because I think when Jesus opened the door, he just stood there and didn't say anything. There's a smile on Jesus' face that says, what are you doing here? And there's a twinkle in his eye that says, I know what you're doing here. Ever have a hard time knowing what to say? 
I mean, if I read the text here, it's real clear. Nicodemus really didn't know what to say to this 33-year-old man, Jesus. So he tried to stammer out. And then if you've ever been in a scenario where people that you work with or whatever en masse formed a view of somebody else, and you wanted the person who was the, you know, who was the target of that to know that you weren't with everybody, I think that's what Nicodemus wanted to do. He wanted to come and give Jesus the good housekeeping seal of approval. I think Nicodemus wanted to come and say, I want you to know I'm not with all my friends. I really think you're coming from God. Jesus neither deferred to him, nor was he harsh. He looked this religious man in the eye, and he said this, you must be born again. That had to blow Nicodemus' mind because Nicodemus was the most religious person of his time. And frankly, it could be blowing some of your minds today because you have a religion. Maybe you come from a Baptist tradition or maybe you come from a charismatic tradition or you come from a Catholic tradition or a Buddhist tradition or whatever else, but somewhere along the line, you've acquired a religion. And in that religion, you got a whole lot of you musts and you must not. And now all those musts and those must nots have compiled together. They've come together to be a form or a tradition that you hold on to. And, and if I give you Jesus' words that say you must be born again, you would say, but, but wait a minute, Mark. You don't understand. I am a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Pentecostal. I am a Buddhist or I'm spiritual. I really don't know what I am, but the idea that I must be born again. Well, Nicodemus certainly would have had that because he was a Pharisee. Now, guys, I want to tell you, nobody could possibly be more religious than a Pharisee. I was going to try to tell you what their lives were like, but I thought instead I'll just read you a story that Jesus told, because Jesus would tell about a Pharisee, and you sort of hear the attitude of the Pharisees when you listen to Jesus' story. In Luke 18, Jesus said two men went to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, well, that's not surprising. They would go at least three times a day to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a tax man. If you work for the IRS, please don't take any umbrage at that because tax collectors in Bible days, were they were vassals of Rome. No self-respecting Jewish person would collect taxes from another Jewish person. So what happened was the scum of the earth basically got that job. And so Jesus is telling the story, saying there's two guys that go down to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, everybody's saying, duh, a Pharisee, that's what Pharisees do. They go to pray. And the other is a tax guy, what's he doing at the temple? Listen to Jesus' story. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. Have you ever seen anybody pose when they pray? I mean, some people can strut sitting down. You know that? It's true. And the Pharisee posed. He's making sure everybody's watching. He's got a prayer to pray. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a robber. I'm not a crook. I'm not an adulterer. Or heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week. He's got me beat on that already. I tithe on all my income. And then the, the tax guy, you know the story, he just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that guy went home saved. But you get the idea of the Pharisees. They were better than everybody else. And, and, and on top of that, the very word Pharisee means separatist. <laughs> they were so careful, they not only tithed on their income, they tithed on their spices. And they were terrified that they would actually come into contact with somebody who didn't tithe. So since they didn't know if people tithed or not, they only associated with other Pharisees. And there were like four different groups of Pharisees, levels, you know. So Jesus is looking at a guy who fasts, he prays, he gives money, he learns all the rules, he jumps through all the hoops, 
He is one of the most religious men in town, if not the most religious man. And Jesus said to him, you're going to have to be born again. I want to go to a sensitive place today because I know that many people who walk into New Spring come in from various traditions. What you should know about Nicodemus was that Nicodemus was not a hypocrite. Most of the Pharisees by Jesus' day were hypocrites. They were very careful to maintain their external appearance, but their insides were all screwed up, and Jesus just kept pointing, about, pointing to that. But Nicodemus was real. I mean, and, and, and some of you, that's, that's who you are. You, you're depending upon your religion, but you're honest about it, and you meant it. And when people said, look, if, if you want to have a relationship with God, you've got to jump through these hoops, and you said, okay, I'll jump. They told you you had to learn these answers. You had to go to these services. You had to go to these classes. You had to, you had to learn these truths. You had to say these lines. And, and, and when you did it, you really were sincere because you really wanted a relationship with God. You weren't faking. And that's Nicodemus. There's only one thing about being truly sincere in a dead religion. And Jesus had it in his hip pocket, and he knew it was true about Nicodemus. Being sincere in a dead religion will always leave you empty. You'll go through all the hoops. You'll go to the services. You'll memorize the lines. And yet, at the end of the day, you'll wonder, do I really have any relationship with God? Now, if you're faking it, you're getting what you want out of it. You know, if, you're, if you know you're faking it, well, then you, you, know, you, you did it for some reason, maybe to be in a relationship with somebody or maybe to make business contacts in church or whatever. If you're faking it, you're getting what you want out of it. And most of the people who were Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were just faking. But Jesus knew Nicodemus was real, and it was sincere, and he knew that even though Nicodemus was doing all these musts and not doing the must-nots, Jesus knew that he was empty on the inside. So Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, Nicodemus had two questions, and it could be that you're here today, and the moment you hear that you need to be born again, you have these two same questions. The first question Nicodemus had is in John 3, 4. He said, what do you mean? I don't know what you mean. And later, he would say, he would ask, he would ask it in absurdity as if what you're telling me is not possible because I can't go back into my mother's body and be born again. And that's where Jesus answers the question. I want to draw your attention to John 3, verse 5, because Jesus answers the question, what it means to be born again. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. Time out, okay? Let's disconnect for a few moments. Because some are going to look at that and say, born of water and of the Spirit, water, I, need to be, I must be baptized in order to go to heaven. Well, I want to make this real clear because in a few weeks we're having Watermark Weekend here, and, and Watermark is baptism. But I want you to know really, really clear, and just I hope everybody's just really, really listening right now, baptism does not do anything to save you. When Jesus talks about being born of water here, he is not talking about baptism. You know, every once in a while, you know, let, let, let me back up for a moment, because you could be here, you're here and you're saying, Mark, I, I'm, I may want to be part of Watermark. Here's what you need to know. Only people who have been born again can be baptized. Baptism is like a wedding ring. This ring did not make me married. I could have been married if I'd never had a wedding ring. But most of us who are married, we wear wedding rings because those wedding rings are tangible, visible symbols 
of an, of an invisible set of vows that took place between two people who love each other more than anybody else. And we wear these rings because we want to proudly identify with the person that we're married to. That's what baptism is all about. That's why you know, being baptized as a baby won't get you anywhere because a baby hasn't put confidence in Jesus yet. Only when you put your confidence in Jesus can you take that step. I mean, if you wore a wedding ring before you got married, it'd be kind of cheesy, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, and so baptism means that you have been born again. So what happens in baptism, a person goes below the water to show the death and burial of Jesus and comes up out of the water to show the resurrection of Jesus. And what a person who is baptized is saying is, I want everybody to know I'm identifying with the one who died, who was buried, and who rose from the grave. That's what baptism is about. I've heard people say, oh, I was just baptized and just felt the water wash away my sins. Wichita water can't wash away anybody's sins. <laughs> There's only one fluid that can wash away your sins, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus mean here? That you have to be born of water and the Spirit. So easy. It's so simple because instantly he gives us what he means. In verse 6, he says humans can re reproduce only human life. That's the first birth. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Well, I need to be born of water and of the Spirit. This is real easy. What is the line that sins husbands and wives racing to the hospital when a woman is about to give birth. What does she say? My water is broken. Exactly. Jesus is saying, look, you got to be born physically, but that's not enough. Nicodemus, you've already experienced that. The very fact that you're present here tonight, you've had the water birth, but that's not enough. You have to be born spiritually. So when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and Nicodemus said, what do you mean? Jesus said, look, Nicodemus, you've been born physically. You've had the first birth, but your spirit has not been. You haven't started life over spiritually. And then Nicodemus asks the second question. Chapter 3, verse 9, Nicodemus says, how does this happen? That's a good question. You and I need to know that. Guys, I wish I knew how to preach. The most important thing in your life it's not who you marry, even that's mega important. It's not what you do for a living. The most important thing that must happen in your life is you need to be born again. How does it happen? Jesus' answer is considered by many to be the most important verses in the Bible. John 3:16 will be part of this answer. Jesus is going to explain to Mark and to you, to Baptists, to Catholics, to Buddhists, to Hindus. Jesus is going to explain to everybody how you become born again. And he's talking to a seminary professor, so he's going to have to do it very slowly. I mean, in the next chapter, he's going to deal with a woman who's like, you know, the last person you would think to be saved. She, she had four husbands, five husbands. She's divorced. She was sleeping with the man who was not her husband. Jesus just said to her, if you ask me, I give you living water. I mean, I mean, she gets it and goes and brings the whole town back. But he's dealing with a seminary professor here, so he's got to go very slowly. You know, with those of us who have religion in our backgrounds, it's got to come very slowly. Now, here's what I want you to watch. Jesus is going to say something over and over and over. When I read this to you, notice how many times he's going to refer to him and he's going to refer to believing. Because being born again is what God does through Jesus Christ 
and our part is to believe. Now, I'm, I'm giving you that ahead of time. All I'm going to say is watch how many times that shows up in these verses. Because Nicodemus has said, how does a person become born again? Okay, here we go. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, or he loved the world so much, that he gave us his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is on this fact, God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light because their actions are evil. Did you get that? Believe, Nicodemus has said, how do I become born again? And Jesus says over and over and over, believe on Jesus. I know you probably got it, but I believe the six most important facts in the universe are in the verses we just read. Fact number one, God loves the world. Number two, God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Fact number three, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Perish means go to hell. Whoever, I love the whoever there. Whoever, that means you, that means me. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The fourth one is my favorite. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Do you believe in Jesus today? Then there's no outstanding judgment against you. There's no indictment. But you say, but I've done all these wrong things. Hey, he took them on himself on the cross. And there's no judgment against anyone who believes in Jesus. Now I must deal with something. Because every once in a while, there are those who come from very traditional religious backgrounds, and they will come into New Spring, and they will hear the message of grace, and they will say something like this. It cannot be so simple as believing. And I'll even hear some kind of nutcase term every once in a while. It's, it's called easy believism. Now look, it's either believe or it's not believe, Right? But let's take a few moments to talk about what does it mean to believe in Jesus. And some of you here today, you could say, Mark, I've wrestled with this through the years. I read that I believe in Jesus, but how do I know that I believed enough? How do I know what constitutes, what is it that rises to the threshold of real believing? I want to give you an answer that God's students have been giving for hundreds and hundreds of years based on the actual language of what it means, the Greek word for believe. Three things. You ready? Number one. There is a message. You cannot believe unless there's something to believe. For instance, if I said you must believe that my shirt is black before you could believe, there, there would have to be a message for you to believe. So the very first level of believing is there must be a message. Well, what is that message? We just read it. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Jesus lay on a Roman cross. He was hung there for six hours he paid for the sins of the world. The blood that came out of his body was the currency that paid for our sins. When it was all finished, God looked upon what his son had did and said the sins of the world had been paid for. They took him off the cross, put his body in a grave. Three days later, he walked out of the grave under his own power. He is alive. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he is coming back not to take sides, but he's coming back to take charge. That is the message. That is the message. Number two, the second level of believing is mental agreement. Because you could hear that and you say, I don't believe that. That's crazy. Okay. Well, you've got the first level of believing. You've heard the message. But the second one, you say, I don't agree with that. But for those of us who do, we, we hear that and we say, 
Those are the facts. I agree. I believe that. The third level of faith is to personally commit your soul to what you have agreed to. I, I wrote a, a little book that's in the, the packet for those of you who have accepted Christ, and, and I tried to answer every question I could answer about salvation, and, and I told a story in this little book that I'll tell you now. Many years ago, there was a guy that was doing a tightrope act across a falls, and he walked across the wire a couple times and wowed the crowd, and he carried some stuff across. Then he pushed a wheelbarrow across the wire. Really impressive. Crowd. So this guy, after doing all those feats, he came before the crowd and said, how many of you believe I could push a man in the wheelbarrow across the wire? And everybody raised their hand. He said, okay, can I have a volunteer? (laughs) Well, simply put, the third level of believing is getting in the wheelbarrow. There is a message. Jesus died for you. He rose from the grave. You agree with that. And then there is that moment when you say, I'm not trusting in me. I'm not trusting in my religion. I'm not trusting in the fact that my father was a minister. I'm not trusting in anything. I'm trusting only in Jesus Christ. I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. He died for me. I agree. My soul is totally wrapped up in Jesus. Not in what I do or haven't done. It's wrapped up in Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, that is what it means to believe. And if you do that, you have been born again. You become God's child, not on Mark's words, but on the words of Jesus Christ. He is the one who said believe. And anybody who wants to add anything to it, and you want to say, well, you have to do this or that in order to believe, you have just brought heresy into the word of God. Salvation is a matter of you putting your confidence and trust in Jesus Christ. Game, set, match. That's the story. Fact number five, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. Man, how how many of us have been in religious traditions that were so condemning, and yet the Bible says God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world? Why? Fact number six, the world was condemned already. I mean, we're under condemnation already because we love darkness rather than light, and that's true about every one of us. All of us have that inside our gear work. I mean, Jesus didn't come into the world to judge us. He came into the world to rescue us. And all that adds up to one thing today. You must be born again. You must. You must. Jesus said, if you're not born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. Well, how did Nicodemus do with all this? I'm sure Jesus knew his mind. My gut tells me that Nicodemus heard Jesus talk about this, and his, his thoughts were, I don't know about this new teaching. <laughs> so Jesus preempted him. And, and, he, and, he, and, and, and I, I love all of John 3, and i got to tell you, this just eats my lunch. I wish I knew how to preach. All four times this weekend, I keep thinking, I'm not doing this justice. John 3 is like this mountain peak, and I'm just giving you a cup of snow off the top of the mountain. It's just, it's such an awesome place. But as much as I love John 3:16 and John 3:17. I want to give you now my favorite part of John chapter 3. Because Jesus knew Nicodemus would know about this. He said, you know, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, just like that or just so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, this, this is no new thing, boy. 
I mean, God's been trying to show this for the centuries. You, you do remember the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they kept choking at their moment of destiny. God wanted to get them to the promised land, but they kept not believing. And because they kept flipping God off, God let, had to let them go through difficulty. And then they would turn around and blame God for the difficulty. And, and do, let me just read it to you. It's out of the book of Numbers. I'll read it quickly because this is the whole thing about the, the poisonous snakes. And some of you are in the medical profession. You know the actual symbol of the medical profession is the, is the bronze snake. Let, let me read the story to you. But the people grew impatient during the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here, nothing to drink. You know that God had given them manna to keep them alive. But the people said, we hate this horrible manna. So God in heaven said, oh, no, what do I do to make them happy? No. The Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Now, I don't know about you, but if God wanted to get my attention, all he would have to do is send snakes. (laughs) Because I hate snakes. There are two kinds of snakes, as you know. There are those that will hurt you, and there are those that will make you hurt yourself. So um, people ask me, do you want to go to the herpetarium? No, I do not want to go to the herpetarium. My way of thinking, the only good snake is the dead snake, yeah. And I know that I've offended some of you because you have snakes for pets, and that's fine, unless you live in my neighborhood. Well, the snakes are crawling through the, through the camp, and they're killing people left and right. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Duh. Pray that the Lord will take... That's not in the Bible. I just put that in there. <laughs> Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, make... Doesn't God have wonderful imagination? Make a replica of the poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply, and for all of you who want to add something to the gospel, if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze, bronze, attached it to a pole. Then anyone, that sounds like whosoever in John 3, anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Oh, I've got five minutes, and I've got to tell you something. This is, this is so good, okay? It's so I just got to tell somebody. What's the point of the bronze snake? And what did Jesus mean that he had to be lifted up like the bronze snake? You ready for this? This is a little bit complex, but it's like eating lobster. You got to do a little work, but it, just dip it in butter and it's so good, okay? What I'm about to share with you. What did God mean by having Moses to put a snake on a pole? What happened is the people looked at that snake as it went through the camp, and they were looking at what they had done wrong and the judgment that was upon them because of their sin. And when they looked upon the snake, they said, we believe that God can heal us from the damage that that snake has done. Well, how on earth could Jesus be like that? How could he represent that? Oh, it's so clear. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Bible says, he, that's God the Father, listen to this language, has made 
him, that's Jesus, has made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, what was he carrying? He was carrying our sins. And the Father punished him as though he were sin himself so that when by faith we look at Jesus hanging on the cross for us, we see our sin placed upon him and by faith we believe that God can heal us from the damage that our own sins have done to us and that is how we become God's children. I just had to tell somebody that. <laughs> I don't know how Nicodemus dealt with this. You know how Pollyannish I am? I want to think that Nicodemus said, okay, I'm, I'm good. Where do I pray? But I don't think he did. I think he was like, well, like a lot of us. For many of you, when you came to faith in Jesus, it was like a light switch. Man, it was like, boom, the light came on and you were just a different person. And for a lot of us, though, like me, it was more like the dawn. It was gradual. Faith sort of came piece by piece. And, and that may be how, it's, how it is for some of you here today because you're not quite there. You're not even sure really where you are. You know you're spiritual. You know you're on a journey. And, and you're picking it up piece by piece. But you would have to honestly say, Mark, I'm really not where you are, and I'm, a lot of this is freaking me out. And I, and I get that. And I sort of think that's where Nicodemus was because I do think there was this gradual. There, there are indications in, in the Bible that it was gradual for Nicodemus. But, but epilogue, there would be one more night when Nicodemus would come out for Jesus. This time it would not be a coward coming in the middle of the night to keep his friends from saying, on this night Nicodemus would be risking his life for Jesus. It was the night Jesus died. The Romans loved to leave people on crosses. They would leave them on crosses for days. They would let their bodies decompose. They would let the birds come and eat their flesh because they wanted to send a signal to anybody who did anything to harm Rome of what would happen to them. And so on the night that Jesus died, the bodies of Jesus and the two criminals that hung with him were still on the cross. Jesus' disciples had gone home. His mother had gone home. The women had gone home. There was nothing they could do. Jesus' body was left on the cross. There were two members of the Sanhedrin who risked their lives because Jesus was not a popular person. He had just been executed. There were two members of the Sanhedrin who risked their lives. They went to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they asked to have charge of Jesus' body so it could be buried. Because they were so influential, Pilate gave them permission. One, you know, was Joseph of Arimathea in whose grave personal grave, Jesus would rest for three days, and the other was Nicodemus. Maybe you think me melodramatic, and maybe I am being melodramatic, to wonder that night if it was Nicodemus who wound up pulling the nails out of Jesus' hands and feet. If it was, as he did that, no doubt he would have remembered the night that Jesus said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You must be born again.
there are no exceptions, no exclusions. You must be born again. It is not what do I need to do to be condemned because the Scripture says we are already under condemnation. Being born again is what gets you out of condemnation. That's why you must be born again. Someone could be here today and you're saying, Mark, I'm ready for that moment. I, I believe. I, I, I've heard the message and I agree. And, and I want to put my confidence, I want to get in the wheelbarrow. Well, if you're ready for that moment, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a chance. We're, we're going to turn this thing into a birthing suite, okay? <laughs> and I want to give you a chance to, to be born again. And, and I'm going to pray a prayer. And these aren't magic words. These are just words that reach out by faith. And I'll say them slowly so that you can think about them and and really make sure you believe them. And for those of you who have already experienced the new birth, you can pray for those who are about to be born again. And, and here's the thing. Some of you, i got to say this. I don't know why I feel, I've never, I didn't say this in the last three services. Some, some of you could be here today, long-time New Springers, long-time in church, and yet you're still holding on to your religion, you're still holding on to other stuff, your own life, and today you can turn loose of that and get in the wheelbarrow and trust nothing or no one but Jesus for your salvation. And you could be born again. Let's do this right now. Everyone praying. Okay, please. And if you're ready, you can pray with me. Here we go. Dear Jesus, I agree that I've sinned. And I cannot save myself. I have heard the message of your death, your burial, and your resurrection. I agree. And today I put all my confidence in that message. I trust you completely. Please wash my sins away. Make me God's child. Thank you for birthing me into God's family. In Jesus' name, amen.